So I don't know how observant some of you are, but I'm trying to play, I guess, a trick on you with the description in your bulletin that says, this is the first of 10 messages from Hebrews 13 on a new sermon series called In Step with the Gospel. So I'm trying to make it seem like, hey, it's a new year and we've got a new sermon series in the book of Hebrews. And that's the trick. We've been in the book of Hebrews for quite a while, for those of you that are just joining us today or recently. And we've spent week by week going through small sections of this book. And when we got to chapter 13, the original plan was, as I said last week, to just give it all in one message and finish up the Hebrew series and start something new in January. However, as I continued looking at chapter 13 and seeing the different topics that are being addressed, I thought we should put a new spin on it and take a longer time working through each verse and spend 10 weeks. And so let's, let's think of it as a separate sermon series, but then again as the continuation of the one that we've been going through Hebrews already. So that's the plan starting today. And if you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to open to Hebrews chapter 13. Uh, we're going to look at just verse 1 in Hebrews 13. It's found on page 1009 in these black Bibles that are surrounded in the seats in front of you. And if you're wondering why we're going to call this sermon series for these 10 weeks in step with the gospel, it's because that's, I think, one of the most helpful phrases in all of the New Testament to explain how the truth about what we believe in the gospel affects the way we think about how we live every day and not confuse the two. So, for example, some people might say because they love talking about the gospel so much, and I'm all a fan of talking about the gospel so much, as you all are well aware, but they might say things like, hey, we need to live the gospel. I don't think that's actually possible. That's like saying, live the evening news last night. What does that even mean? The gospel is news. It's a declaration of something that has been done in history. So how do you live the gospel? You're, you're trying to make it something that it's not. The way the Bible talks about that relationship is to say, is your conduct in step or in accord with the truth that's proclaimed in the gospel. It's, it's a very small nuance, and at the end of the day, we probably mean the same thing when we're talking live the gospel or live in accordance or in step with the truth of the gospel. But I'm a bit picky at times, you know, and I want to make sure that we're being precise in our thinking and not turning the gospel, something that has been done, into an action that you're to do. Oh, that would be a big confusion if all of us started saying live the gospel and you turned it into a verb to do. No, no, friends, Jesus paid it all. So therefore, the gospel has been done. So now then, how do we live in light or in accord with that truth? And this phrase, by the way, comes from Galatians chapter 2. That's the New Testament reference that I'm using as the title for these 10 sermons. In step with the gospel. Peter was having meals and fellowship with Jewish and Gentile Christians. They were all together in one happy family but then Peter decided to start separating himself from Jewish Christians. 
It didn't take long for the rest of the Jews that were following the leadership of Peter to stop eating with other Gentiles as well. So now there is a divide in the church where Peter is at. Paul the apostle comes and visits and sees this. And in Galatians 2, he confronts Peter. And this is the phrase. It says, when he saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, he confronts Peter. So that's, that's where this sermon series title is coming from as a way of introduction. Ten weeks at looking at how Hebrews 13 can have our conduct, because these are a list of commands for how we're to live as Christians in Hebrews 13. But what a shame if we were to take Hebrews 13 and take each of these topics week after week after week and forget chapters 1 through 12, which are all about what? The gospel about Jesus Christ, who he is, and what he has done and accomplished for us. So in other words, there is the truth of the gospel, chapters 1 through 12, and then 13 is all about how we should live in step with that truth. So we're going to see 10 different things. This week, we're going to see how we should love one another as Christians. So I want us, every single sermon in this 10-week series, to first remind ourselves of the gospel truths in chapters 1 through 12, not go over them all over again, but just quickly remind ourselves of gospel truths from 1 through 12 that then flow into these imperatives, commands in chapter 13. So let's do that this morning with verse 1. Hebrews 13, verse 1, let brotherly love continue. There's our scripture passage for the day. That's two Greek words if you're reading in the original language that this was written in. Two words, Philadelphia. You all know about Philadelphia, the city of? So that's the first word, brotherly love, Philadelphia. And then the second word is the word that if you've ever seen that Jesus uses quite a bit, abide or remain or stay. And it's in the imperative form and it's saying so, remain in or continue in, abide in brotherly love. There's our passage for the day. But this passage comes after wonderful, glorious truths in Hebrews. So let's first remind ourselves of the truths we need to believe that connect to this idea of brotherly love. And then second, let's look at the way we should behave. So there's our outline for the morning. If you're a note taker or just trying to follow along, where are we at in the message? First, truths to believe about brotherly love. And second, a way that we should then behave. We need to turn back to Hebrews chapter 2. So do that with me, a few pages. And you will see that the writer, before he commands brotherly love, he makes some staggering statements about Jesus and about us. So look at Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to start in verse 10. For it was fitting that he is Jesus. It was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist, and bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God and to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. So you can go back on Embassy Church website and you can look and see that we have already gone over the detailed exposition of this passage. But let us remind ourselves this morning that this passage makes it quite clear Jesus Christ, through his death and what he accomplished, now means he is our brother. So it's kind of a strange idea. I remember a few years ago when I was in a prayer meeting in my house and we were with some people in a church I was a part of. And one of the guys that was praying, he would say, God, our Father, and Jesus, our brother. And that's the way he started every prayer. And I just remember being like, oh, that's kind of weird. Like, nobody ever says that. Do you know people that, Jesus, our brother. You know, I just thought that was a bit unusual. But it's true, isn't it? Hebrews 2 makes it quite clear. He's not afraid or ashamed to call us brother. So how much more should we be proud and confident to put ourselves in the same category and same family as Jesus himself. The other truth that we should look at and remind ourselves is in Hebrews chapter 10, if you turn a couple pages the other way. We'll be reminded in Hebrews chapter 10, verse, let's start in, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'm thinking Hebrews 12. So one more page, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 3 and following. We're reminded of another truth similar to this. Consider him, this is Jesus, consider Jesus who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him, for the Lord disciplines the one He loves, and He chastises every son whom He receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom His Father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our good, that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Jesus is our brother, and this passage makes it quite plain God is our Father. And therefore, when you get to chapter 13, verse 1, it says, let brotherly love continue, which means the church, embassy church, is your family. You are brothers and sisters to one another, that in Christ, 
Jesus being our brother and God being our father, the whole picture of families to begin with was to point to a greater, bigger, ultimate reality that this body of people is, in some sense, more of a family than your own biological immediate family members that you had Christmas celebrations with just a few days ago. Now, this is maybe basic truths for some of you, and if it's a new idea, then I would encourage you to think much about this idea. And I want us to linger or just meditate on what this means. In chapter 6 and in chapter 9, it talks about how we have an inheritance because of being in the family. That means you have all the family rights. And this inheritance, friends, makes you extremely wealthy because God owns everything. And therefore, you have everything. It means that when the world's to come, when He returns and restores it, we get to be partakers in that world to come and rule over it as we were intended to in Genesis chapter 1. It means that we should love each other as brothers and sisters do. So, realize that this truth that's in chapter 2 and chapter 12, these different references he uses throughout the book that we are brothers, references three or four different times throughout this book. Hey, holy brothers live in a certain way. Take care, brothers. That's how he even addresses these people. I don't think it would be too strange if we started more regularly referencing one another as, hey, brother, hey, sister. Again, it might at first feel weird like that friend I was referring to that was praying, Jesus, our brother. But there's a sense to which it's true. You are, in fact, my brother and sister in Christ. And it really is more real and more lasting than even our earthly families. So let that truth lay the foundation for how we interact with God and the people in the church. I think we need to realize that there's always a foundation or, or a basis for our relationships with people in the world. We instinctively act according to those bases or foundations. Let me give you an example. If you're walking around on the street and there's just a random stranger, the basis of your relationship is very little. You don't know them. You know they're a human being. You might observe a few things about who they are and what they look like. Maybe they can speak English or not, or etc. the way they dress, all these sort of things. So there's this immediate instant, okay, that's our only foundation. We have nothing else beyond that. Therefore, you can't really ask or expect much from them. Where is the line that crosses where you're asking too much from a stranger? You can ask them for the time. Hey, can you tell me what time it is? I'm needing to get to an appointment. I don't have a phone on me. That's strange. Why don't you have a phone on you? Or, I'm lost. I need directions. But you can't go up to a random stranger and say, hey, I uh, lost my shoes. Can I have your shoes? Or, can I have your jacket or your shirt? Or, can I have $2,000? There's a line that's drawn because the basis of the relationship is different. Now, I remember thinking about this idea that I was in the city of Chicago at a public library, and I was using headphones to study and, and not be distracted by the people around me, and I was reading or something. And some random stranger walked up to me and said, hey, man, can I have your headphones? And they were the earbud kind of headphones, and I'm like, wait up, man, I don't know you. I don't know, like, you want to, like, have them have them, or you just want to borrow them, or, like, 
You're going to put them in your ears and use them? Because that's dirty. I don't, where have your ears been? There's all these questions. And it just was like, no, dude, you're not having my headphones. That, that was too much. Now, if my lovely wife said, hey, Phil, may I use your headphones? The basis of the relationship, it's like, there's no, there's no flinching. I just have the headphones. Have $2,000. Your family, we're one. I care for you. There's almost no limit then for how you can kind of take it too far. Do you see the difference then between relationships and how the foundation of those relationships then determine how you interact with each other? Which means the deeper you want a relationship to go, the deeper the foundation needs to be. Tim Keller has explained that even though there's a huge spectrum of relationships, the two ends of that spectrum you could call a business relationship and a family relationship. He defines it this way. A business relationship is what I have or can do for you. There's some sort of exchange happening. Maybe you're working for someone. There's a service you can provide. Here's what I can do for you. A family relationship is who you are, what I am to you. So one has to do with your performance, and the other has to do with your identity. In a business relationship, they have something or you have something that you need or want. In a family relationship, it is a commitment to that relationship because of who you are to that person. That spectrum, although there's a variety of degrees that fall in between it, I think are the two ends for how then we should think about the people around us. If you think of your boss as the epitome of a business relationship, your relationship will always be based on your performance to show up to work, to work hard, to do what he tells you. And when you stop doing those things, well, then you get fired, right? Stop showing up to work for the next three months. See how that goes for you. Stop listening to your boss and say, you know, I don't feel like doing that right now. It doesn't work well. One interesting thing when you're thinking about this, and, and my wife and I have had many conversations over the last several years as I've gotten to know her and her side of the family, is that because her family owns a family business, and because we've seen the way that they interact with other people that are members of the family, well, what do you do when somebody's a member of the family, but they're also a member of the business? And then what if they don't work well, and you're like, I need to get rid of this person for the sake of the business, but how do I do that because they're family? Oh, now the lines are starting to be blurred. And now the two different ways we think about relationships are intersecting. Or even furthermore, what if somebody that's just a business coworker and you're their boss, you just keep getting to know them because you work with them week after week and year after year and you get closer and closer and now they're like almost family because they become such a dear friend. And then comes time when like their performance is so terrible that you need to remove them from the business. You see, what a lot of people say in professional business relationships is don't get too close to them. Keep things professional. Because you don't want to have to make that decision and get too tight. Like, well, for the sake of the business, we need to let you go. Do you see... These two ideas are important for all of us when we think about what it means to be a Christian. To be a Christian is to understand that you have been adopted into a family relationship and not a business. 
God is a master and a Lord, and we're to obey him and serve him. But for so many people, this is the only way they think about God. You have been given all the rights and privileges of being in the family, and therefore, God does not disown you based on your poor performance. If you don't believe this, like if you don't understand the way that your family relationships are permanent and they last forever and that you could be failing miserably in your performance, but that because you're a member of the family, I can't just get rid of you. You're a brother. You're a sister, Jesus says. You're my son. You're my daughter. If you're a parent, you know this all too well. Do you stop loving your children all of a sudden because they've stopped? listening to you? Well, I'm getting rid of you now. You've disobeyed way too much, child. Where's that adoption, orphanage? I mean, this is not the way we act. For better, for worse, for richer, for poor. This is what marriage is about. It's permanent. Adoption is an act of a parent, a unilateral act not based on the behavior of the child. Most adoptions, in fact, these days are because the children have been so unruly or awful that nobody wants them. And so some family, because of their great love and mercy, chooses to adopt and bring them in, not on the basis of their behavior, but because of the father and the mother's great love. Friends, this is the gospel. Do you see the beauty of adoption? That by God calling you his father, through the blood of Jesus Christ, covering over all sin, that your performance as a child is not the basis of your relationship with him. The minute you adopt a child, the essential change of the adoption is a legal standing of nature, not behavior. Therefore, our Father says that if you misbehave, I'll still love you. I'm not sending you away. Jesus prays in John 17, Father, love them as you have loved me. One gospel truth for you to soak on today. Father, love the church the way you have loved me. Have you ever thought about how much God loves Jesus, his son? Do you remember in Jesus' baptism, the way a dove comes down and he says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. He is very pleased and happy with his son. He loves him. There's no greater love that the father has than his love for the son. Do a study sometime on the love of the father towards the son, Jesus. And all those different passages like the one I just referenced at Jesus' baptism. Then, in light of all those things, see John 17. The Father loves us the same way He loves His own Son. Friends, the good news of the gospel of adoption is our foundation. And God is not our great Master and Lord. He is our Father. And that has to be the beginning foundation for our relationship to now loving one another. Do you believe this? This is the truth to believe. This is the foundation. Hebrews has laid this foundation throughout chapters 1 through 12. So before exhorting us as a church to love one another, you will never ever be able to do that until you first know that God through Christ loves you like he loves Christ. 
This is the good news of the gospel. And it should change the way we interact with God and others. So that's our first half of this message. That's the truth to believe. We need to be pounding and reminding that truth in our heads and believing it by faith. Secondly, what's the way then we should behave in our lives? Friends, the idea that God is our Father and Jesus is our brother and we're now a family is not merely a truth to believe. This is a truth to cherish, a truth to be delighted in, a truth to praise God for his amazing love. If you go to work this week and at the end of the week you get a paycheck, do you look at your boss and go, wow, thank you, God. Thank you. Do you ever have tears streaming down your eyes with overwhelming gratitude for the check that the boss gave you for your work? Well, of course not, because you know you deserved it. You worked for it. But when you realize that you are receiving something amazing that you did not deserve, then tears stream down your eyes. When you realize that your relationship with God is not an employee business relationship and I'm getting paid because I've done good works, therefore I deserve the love of God. But when the basis of your relationship is that he has a free gift of his grace, you will be continually amazed and led to worship. So I ask first and foremost, the way for you to behave is to be amazed. Because that amazement and praise will be the foundation and the fuel for the fire of our love for one another. You understand this? Love for each other and love for God is a flame to be burned. But the flame needs fire. I mean, the flame needs fuel. It needs a little blowing on and and the embers need to be lifted up. How do we get that? By looking and seeing his amazing love. Why else do we sing songs like amazing love? How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? Those are people who are in awe. I should not be a part of this family, but I am. Amazing love, how can it be? Christianity is not about merely having a relationship with God. Everybody's got a relationship with God. It's about a certain kind of relationship with God. Which kind of relationship with God do you have? A business relationship or a family one? Therefore, let's live in step with this gospel as a church family and act like the people around us in this room and the members that have joined our church are, in fact, our family. Like, not just as a, oh, that's a cute metaphor. I like that. That makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside when we say our church is a family. Like, seriously. You're my brother and my sister, and I will treat you like my brother and sister. And if you have needs, you need $2,000? Okay, here's $2,000. And that's not like a a joke. You know, like, you have needs. We're going to help you meet those needs. The New Testament says in a variety of different times and places, that we should be a loving sort of people because of the love God has showed us, but that we should be especially loving to the Christians and brothers and sisters. Do good to all, and especially those of the household of faith. Honor all men, but love the brotherhood in particular. 
In 1 John chapter 3, it tells you that if you do not have love for your brothers and sisters, well, then I don't think you have God's love in you to begin with. The litmus test for you to understand if you're even a Christian, in part, is to know, do you have love, ever-growing, increasing love for the people around you? I think as a church, we need to apply these words by asking the question, are we known for our brotherly love as a church? Don't we all know the words of Jesus? This is how the world will know you're my disciples, if you have love for one another. I hope at some time, and in many more years and days to come, we'll hear multiple testimonies of, you know, the reason why I came and stayed at Embassy Church was because of the love for one another. Not preaching, not music, not comfortable scenario of chairs and wherever we're meeting, not children's ministry. I mean, the list could go on. These are the reasons why people attend church and because they're thinking as a business, what are my needs and how can the church meet those needs? Not thinking, who's the family that I can be a part of? Who's going to love me like a brother or a sister? Friends, let us have this as the goal in our mind. The goal is not business success, or a huge church, but greater, deeper love for God and one another. I hope that we're doing well in this. I hope that it's the same way the Hebrews author doesn't say, start loving one another. Continue. One of the beautiful things that happened earlier this morning, for some of you that couldn't make it, downstairs we were meeting for breakfast, and we just started sharing around tables. What are some ways you've seen the love of one another in the church. And it was so cool to hear all the different examples that were being shared. Well, some people are helping practically or with financial needs or babysitting needs. Some people are helping with my spiritual growth and even loving me to tell me where I'm needing to grow and all these different issues. It's a wonderful thing to see the love of God displayed in the church. And so we're commanded here, let brotherly love continue all the more. If we have business relationships, they stay at a distance. But family relationships are personal. They're in your face. They get into your space. This actually corresponds well with what we've already heard in the book of Hebrews. Do you remember chapter 3, verse 12? Take care, brothers, lest you be hardened by the deceitfulness of your sin, encourage one another every day. See, that's what a family's like. You're in each other's space every day. It's not just once a week or every few times a month. Uh, that's just business stranger relationships. But a family, they know their business, and they're in each other's business. But then they care for one another in the midst of it. As a church together, we have signed a covenant and it promises that we would do a few things together. One of them is we will walk together in brotherly love with affectionate care. And we will reprove, rebuke, and exhort when necessary. One of the things I loved was that when I asked for testimonials about how we love one another in this last year or two as a church, Maria shares first and foremost and just says, hey, I feel loved when you all take me aside and not yell in my face, but correct me when I'm wrong. Brotherly love includes rebuking 
correcting, exhorting when necessary. You know, I think I was hearing one pastor explain that a lot of times when we think about loving one another, we're thinking, okay, let's be a welcoming church. And friends, I think we can grow at being a welcoming church and let's strive to be welcoming to visitors. And visitors, we love you. Welcome. You know, I hope that you feel welcome. We want to be a loving, welcoming church. I think a lot of times we think about the things that were shared downstairs, caring for one another during trials, and people were sharing about when difficult times happen, when babies are in the NICU for a few months, or when child is born, or when somebody's going through a hard time, meals are shared, and practical gifts of service are done, or somebody's moving from one house to another, and you help with service. We think about those ways that we love one another. We celebrate with each other when we've succeeded. We bear each other's burdens when we're struggling with sadness and pain. But I was caught by this pastor that shared, those are the normal ways we think about loving one another. What we don't think is the way Maria shared this morning. Is that when a couple is really struggling, and there's people that are just watching and gossiping and saying, yeah, they're headed to divorce. I saw that coming for years. What unloving kind of congregation would you have to be to observe that and just talk about it and not actually try and do anything to help them? This is the sort of love we should have as a church that gets in one another's lives, not to be just nosy and in each other's space for the sake of being nosy, but because we genuinely, deeply care for one another. Family relationships are more personal, but they're also more costly. If we turn back to Hebrews chapter 10, we'll see an example of why I think he says, let your love continue. Not start loving one another. No, no, let your love for the brothers continue. Here's one specific example that we've seen in this passage, starting in verse 32, about how sacrificial and giving they are of themselves for the brothers. Verse 32, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with suffering, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. Now, if we stop right there, he's saying, okay, remember, there were these days that after you became a Christian, you had a hard struggle with suffering. And sometimes this was public, it was terrible. But why? Because they became partners with those that were already suffering under persecution. And then verse 34, you had compassion on those who were in prison. You joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew yourself, you yourselves had a better and abiding possession. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. You need endurance. Here's a great example in the book already of brotherly love that has been happening, and he's saying, let this brotherly love continue. This sacrificial, putting your life on the line, literally in this example of chapter 10. So I want to ask you, is there too much self-preservation that you're not giving of yourself and putting yourself out there? And it's a bit risky when you love people this way. You know, it's, it's safe if we keep the business relationships and keep things formal and just say your hellos and Merry Christmases and be out the door and not actually engage in one another's lives. That's safe and it's comfortable, but it's not love. 
Love involves a sacrifice and a giving of oneself. If we're to love one another as Christ loved us, the example for us could not be clearer. He gave of himself. He gave all of himself to his death. Death on a cross. One of the ways that this family illustration between family love and business love is crystal clear is because some of you are thinking, you know, I don't like this idea of family because my family's terrible. You know, it's messy. It's complicated. I don't like family gatherings at Christmas time because there's all this drama and chaos. I like to keep the distance from them. You know, the fact that you're still meeting with them, even though it's messy, proves the point all the more. That you're willing to continue meeting with them and acknowledging them as a family member and even put yourself through that because they're your family. That's just what you do. And in a ten times greater way, this is what God has done for us by giving us the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. Things do get messy. In fact, Jesus got quite messy with his own blood for our sake. You do have to put yourself out there, and Jesus put himself out there. And this is what Christmas was all about, him leaving heaven and his throne and coming down and becoming poor and putting himself out there for us. So just because things are messy, that doesn't mean we run away from them and say, well, I'm done with that church. Embassy Church is going to have its own mess like every family does. I'm sure we've got it now. If you can't see it, then just stick around and have your eyes opened wider and brighter. The question is, what is the foundation or the basis of our relationship in the mess? One of the sad things about having so many churches around us is that some of you are just going to run away and say, I'm done with this church because of some sort of mess or issue, family drama. Somebody hurts you. Somebody says something, does something that you don't like. Well, I'll just go down to the other church around the street. Is that how we treat each other as family members? You know, I'm done with you guys. I'm going to just join this other family across the street because they're a lot nicer, at least on the surface. We all have our warts because we're all sinners. That's why the basis of our relationship is the cross. The basis of our relationship with God is the cross, and the basis of our relationship as brothers and sisters is the cross. And so in a moment, we're going to close the service, and we're going to take the Lord's Supper. Because it was when Jesus was about to take the Lord's Supper with his disciples, he gave those words to say, this is how they will know you're my disciples, by your love for one another. This was a part of his upper room discourse, some of his final words before he gave the bread and the cup and before he gave his life for us because he was showing us the ultimate example that the basis, the foundation is deep and wide. It is an unconditional act of love based on God himself coming into the person of Jesus, dying in our place, rising again victorious over death and then offering to you the, the, the adoption certificate do you want to join the family? Do you want to be a part of God's family? Friends, I, I hope that all of you, whether you do that here at Embassy Church, you do it somewhere, and you don't do it superficially or business-like. Join a church where there is brotherly love, and even when there's sinful mess, 
there's a cross that looms over that sin. The shadow of the cross is bigger and brighter and greater than the darkness of our own sin in the church. That's the sort of church that we want to be at Embassy, and we pray that you would help us love one another continually. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we want to give you thanks for Jesus Christ's amazing definition of love. There's no greater love than this. Someone lays down his life for his friend. And thank you that you laid down your life for us even though we were enemies. We reject you, we rebelled. And you ran after us and you adopted us, not because of the basis of our behavior, but because of your unconditional love toward us. You chose us. And thank you we can call you Father now. Thank you that we can call you Brother Jesus. And that we're now all brothers and sisters in this room. God, give us the strength of your Holy Spirit to empower us even this week and this day and even at the conclusion of this service, to genuinely love the people around us in this room. May it not be trite, or superficial, or flippant, or fake, or happy faces, or we're not real about the pain and the struggles in our lives. But in the same way, Jesus came down from his earthly throne and into our mess. I pray that we would get involved with each other's lives in these ways. In Jesus' name, amen.